Hi, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 41. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely. While his heart gathers slander, then he goes out and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me. For my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Joy. The New Testament reading is found in Romans eight thirty-five through 39. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. The word of the Lord. Please stand. My name is Megan. The gospel reading is found in Luke 22, 14 to 23, 31 and 34. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to them, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been in a series this Lent on lament, and lament is not an often, a thing we often talk about in church because we don't want to be in touch with our sorrow or with our pain or with the things in life that feel uncomfortable, main, mainly because um, they're painful, and we don't want to have to be reminded of that, and yet it's very difficult to deny that at some point in our life, maybe not with us directly, but maybe indirectly, maybe eventually, there, be, there comes an experience of pain. And I, I think if we don't talk about it in church, we are sort of implying that those experiences are outside God's realm. That we've got to sort of sort that out on our own and then come back to God when we've got it all tidied up. Instead of realizing that God meets us in our messes. That God comes to us. I said this on Ash Wednesday. That God comes to us in the ashes so that we can rise from it, so that he can lift us up from it. And so we've subtitled this series, A Journey with Jesus to the Cross. One of the reasons we mark the season of Lent is to help us prepare for Easter, to not rush ahead to victory and celebration and, and, and dancing, but to recognize that even for Jesus, there was not only the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness early in his ministry, but also the season of becoming more and more aware of the cross as, his, uh, as the gospel writers tell us the days drawing near toward his death. And so it's a way for us to reenact that, to enter it, to say, Jesus, I want to pay attention to you and to your suffering and to your sacrifice. But you know what happens is along the way we realize that all of Jesus' suffering was really for him to be near to us. That this isn't us doing God some kind of a favor and saying, Jesus, I'm going to remember you this Lent and I'm going to think about how hard it was for you. No, 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 no. As we start to pay attention to Jesus, what we realize is, Jesus, you are God with us. You're the one who came to enter into our pain, into our brokenness, into our sorrow, so that you can bring us out of it. We talked about suffering the first week, then we talked about grief and loss in the second week, and then we talked about anguish and anxiety. Last week we talked about loneliness. This week I want to talk about failure. (laughs) Now, someone joked on Facebook that this was a a no-lose setup for me as the preacher because if the sermon's bad, it was just an illustrated sermon. About failure. We live in a culture that values success. We hear constantly, dream big, take risks, go ahead, venture out. We, we live in a culture that despises the small and the same. And so if you've had the same job for 20 years, we almost make people feel ashamed of that. You boring, fearful individual... Why didn't you rest, you know, why didn't you step out and take a risk and be an entrepreneur? We value these success stories of people who strike it out and, and, and make it big. And embedded in that is this corollary thing. If, if success and risk is the greatest virtue, then failure is the greatest vice. One of the theology books I was reading about the subject said that in our day, Perhaps failure has replaced sin 
as the greatest evil to be avoided. That we might not speak of moral evils because we're not sure what that is as a culture, but we can all agree none of us wants to fail. None of us wants to, to step out and not have it work. When we've been talking about lament, we've been talking about this need to give voice to our pain, and in particular, a loss. And you'll remember in week two, we talked about these types of losses, and we'll put them up on the screen again. But there's a loss of attachments, meaning a loss of a relationship, say bereavement, with a loss of a loved one or a friend through death, or maybe an estranged relationship. But there's also losses that are maybe easier to miss, a loss of status. This could be a loss of a job, or a loss of a position, or a demotion, or a change in job, a loss of... Um, meaning is another kind of loss. A loss of meaning could be a loss of the thing that once made you excited to wake up in the morning on a Monday. And all of a sudden you say, that thing is gone. That's not as exciting to me as it once was. And so in America we say, that's because you're settling for a boring job. You need to go chase more excitement. You need to go chase more adventure. Anything to avoid admitting that there are little losses in our life. Failure is a loss. Failure is a kind of loss. And if you've experienced any measure of failure in your life, whether it's big or small, it could be a parent who feels like, man, I, I, I failed, or it could be uh, at work, it could be a project, it could be a friend, it could be all sorts of situations where you say, you know what, that was a bit of a failure. Maybe it's a failure in a sense to your own expectations of yourself. And we'll say more about that in a a moment. But all failure is a kind of loss. A sense of feeling like, "Mm, I don't have what I thought I should have. But failure is also disorienting. It's very disorienting because failure is a reminder that life has gone off the script. Nobody sets out in their youth and says, okay, this is how my life is going to go. I'm going to get started in a career, and then it's just going to blow up in my mid-30s. And then I'm going to be lost and floundering for about 10 years, and then I'll find something else that'll be moderately okay and satisfying, and then I'll sort of disappear into old age. There are no Disney movies that follow that script. So failure, when it happens, is disorienting. Because you say, well, I didn't, I didn't plan on that. I didn't plan on not getting that job. I didn't plan on not having that house. I didn't plan on not being able to have these vacations. I didn't plan on my children being like this. I didn't plan on not having children. I didn't plan on... And it's disorienting because it feels like the script that you had is now gone. Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann is this Old Testament scholar, particularly of the Psalms and Old Testament prophet books, but we mentioned this in one of the earlier weeks, how Brueggemann says the Psalms kind of follow these these settings, settings of life, if you will. And he calls one setting, he calls it secure orientation. These are the Psalms, when you read them, they say, God is my rock, I will never be shaken. We love to sing, we have songs based on that, because that we feel like that sometimes in life. But Brueggemann says there are not, psalms are not just psalms of secure orientation because life is not just full of secure orientation. 
He says there's this second phase of disorientation where you feel like you're not sure where's up and where's down and where's left and where's right. I think of the psalm where the psalmist says, okay, I, I don't understand why the wicked prosper and why the righteous go hungry. I, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I have kept my heart pure and yet this is not working out. And then Brueggemann says there's this third category. It's called new orientation where all of a sudden something breaks in from the outside and makes everything right again. An unexpected hope. But failure is an experience of disorientation. It's something that can evoke feelings of anger or rage. You might be wondering why you're so snippy with your friends or your family. and you're Why why am I so agitated? And, And maybe there's an underlying feeling of I am failing to be what I thought I would be. Failing as a a husband, or failing as a wife, or failing as a mother, or failing as a friend, or failing as an employee. Whatever it is, there's these little things under the surface that nag at us and say, "This this isn't working out, is it? This isn't. And maybe if we were to unpack this more, it's worth saying there's probably four levels of failure. There's probably many levels of failure. And the first would be failing to meet cultural expectations. So I've heard researchers say things like that in America, the cultural expectation for a woman is to be married (laughs) and pretty and thin and quiet. And there's a cultural expectation for men to be strong, courageous, slaying mountain lions with his bare hands. <laughs> I've often joked that I know some of you are, are, are connected to Eldridge's ministry, Wild at Heart, and I, I you know, whatever, but I, I have often joked, <laughs> I, I have often joked That if I were to write the book, it would be called Mild at Heart, for the other kind of man, you know. But there are these cultural expectations of what masculinity means and what femininity means. And so there's a sense of failure when you feel like you don't fit that. And I'll tell you folks, it starts at an early age. Early on, you see it in children when they realize... Why don't I fit that? Why am I not that? There's a second level of failure, and that is a little bit deeper. It's the sense of failing ourselves. That sometimes we can be our our harshest master because we've decided, this is what I ought to be like. I ought to be like this. I ought to have this. I ought to be able to make this. I ought to be able to do that. And then when we don't, we say... I failed. Who have you failed? I failed myself. Why do you expect this of yourself? I don't know, because I can do better. And then if we press another layer deeper, we'd say, well, what about failing loved ones? The trick is as we press deeper into these levels of failure, we're now moving from perhaps a perceived failure to actual failures, right? 
Because the cultural one, we could say, ah, what does culture know? And yourself, you could say, what did I know? But what happens when someone you really care about says, in essence, you failed me. I wanted you to be there for me, and you weren't. I had hoped that you would be this, and you're not. It's really fun doing premarital counseling uh, for me, anyway. <laughs> I don't know if it is uh, for the couples, but I, I, I um, try to help young couples understand that there's going to come a point where you will fail one another. No, we won't. <laughs> I am always going to believe in your dreams, babe. <laughs> like, no, 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 you're, you're not. I just want to tell you that. Like, you've got to fail one another. And preparing them for that. Maybe the worst kind of failure, the deepest one, is when we fail God. Because if we fail another person, we can say, well, they didn't deserve it. Or they've never been there for me either. But what will you say when you failed God? Now there's no way to justify yourself. So you're saying, well, God, the God who gave everything to me, the God who has been nothing but faithful to me, and I, I have to admit that I failed. You notice when we do confession each week, the prayer says, and it's so beautiful what Cranmer wrote, we have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Oh! <laughs> Talk about admitting failure. When is that prayer ever not true? It's always true. Not all failure is sin. Let's be clear. Not all failure is sin. But all sin is failure. Not all failure is sin, but all sin is failure. Failure to love God with our whole heart. Failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus, where are you in this? Jesus, where are you in failure? Jesus, do you have anything to say to the ones who tried and failed. Jesus himself would have known the first level of failure. Cultural expectations? Are you kidding me? Do you know the job description of Messiah? Somewhere at the top of that list is kill all the bad guys. Right? The Messiah is the son of David, the one who would right all that was wrong in the world, the one who would face God's enemies on behalf of God's people, the way David faced Goliath on behalf of Israel, the one who would stand in representatively and defeat the great enemy of God. And so when the people start to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they start to get excited. And it's possible that the whole thing with Judas betraying Jesus, it's possible that Judas was trying to say, okay, Jesus, I see you're not starting the fight anytime soon. Maybe I'll just kind of prod you along. Maybe I'll kind of back you into a corner because we all know once you're backed into a corner, maybe then you'll rip out the, the, you know, the, the Superman thing and 
You'll be like, you'll show them what you can really do. They'll come to arrest you and you'll go, roar! The way Samson did, the way David did, the way all the great heroes of the Old Testament did. Right, Jesus? Right, Jesus? Right? Instead, they come to arrest him and Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. And they whip him and they beat him and Jesus stays silent barely answering those who are interrogating him. And then on a cross on a Friday afternoon, the sky goes black because nobody can believe that God's anointed one doesn't kill anyone but gets killed. What? What kind of a Messiah is this anyway? Not the Messiah that you'd put on a magazine cover. I mean, think about this. Our icons as Christians is an instrument of death. But not other people's death, his own death. What? Think of how backwards that is. When we have war heroes, we show them decorated we we show them maybe in other cultures with their with their sword or their weapons and it shows their might and us our hero is dead on a cross this is this is this is messed up man this is one failed messiah not only did he fail cultural expectations of being the messiah but he failed loved ones you have Peter running away scared and confused. You have possibly Judas in such great despair that he's thinking, what have I given my whole life to? I gave my life to follow that? And he didn't come through? Peter goes back to fishing. Not that there's anything wrong with fishing. But at one point he thought he was going to be part of something special. Listen, this is how the church begins with the failed Messiah and a failed follower of the failed Messiah. Peter can't even follow the failed Messiah well. <laughs> Let's start a church. <laughs> this movement is going to be huge. <laughs> the two men that around Jesus' death, the two men that we think of as being the pictures of failure are Judas and Peter. Both of them kind of came to this place where they believed that, that their failure was final. Maybe Judas thought he'd made a mistake that there was no reversing. Maybe he, may, I mean, there is the theory that he was doing this because he thought it would kind of, you know, force Jesus' hand. And when he saw that Jesus refused to fight back, maybe he thought, okay, well, the Romans are going to come get me, so I'll take care of that before they do. Peter ducks away back to his small town, convinced that their failure was final. But what does the crucified God mean for you in your failure? What does a crucified God mean for you in your failure? See, Jesus lays down his life carrying on himself our failures to God. Not his own, but carrying the weight of all of our failures, all of our sin. 
And on the third day, God raised him up. And the risen Jesus goes looking for Peter. The risen Jesus goes looking for Peter. We heard the gospel reading, which is, Peter, I'm praying for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you. And when you have turned back, go and strengthen the brothers. There's going to be an experience of failure that's going to be so deep and so heartbreaking that you're going to turn away. But when you turn back, because I'm praying for you, Peter. And so the risen Jesus comes and he finds Peter. And three times he asks him, do you love me? Now that's a whole another sermon in itself, right? But surely we can see at the very least, for the three denials that Peter made, Jesus gives him three moments to profess love. The first time Jesus calls Peter, he says, Peter, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And you get the sense that maybe Peter signed up because it sounded like an exciting job. Cool. Don't know what that means, catching men and people and stuff, but I've always wanted to do that. And now, after his failure, Jesus only has one question. Not, Peter, do you love the church? Not, Peter, do you love my word? Not, Peter, do you love a mission? Peter, it's no longer the question of do you want to be a fisher of men? Peter, the question is no longer about purpose. The question is about a person. Peter, the question is no longer about having a life full of dreams and success and purpose. Peter, the question is now very simple. It's just about one person, me. Peter, do you love me? Me. Because, Peter, I love you. All of a sudden, in that moment, Peter begins to be turned around and becomes this leader in the church. When you read his letters, he writes like a shepherd. He writes like one who all of a sudden found what his life was to be about. Maybe it's because he was able to shake out of the success versus failure thing. Maybe it's because failure all of a sudden started to get off of him. And all that mattered was that Jesus came after him. And Peter says, man, if Jesus had come after me, he can come after you. See, with Jesus, no failure is final. With Jesus, no failure is final. It's not the end. It's not the end of the story. I think Jesus is a beautiful picture of this because I wonder if on those dark hours walking toward the hill... And people are mocking him, spitting him. And you know what he's feeling is the hatred of people who are bitter. 
that he was a failure. That's what people do, isn't it? They cheer you on when you're a success, and then when you fail them, they're the first to spit on you. And Jesus is walking up this hill, and I wonder if he silences the voices of all of the angry crowds, the mob of his own people that say, crucify him. And I wonder if in that moment Jesus hears one voice, goes back a few years, and he hears that one voice that split the heavens that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. How would you live if you could turn down the voices of your own heart? Voices of maybe parents, friends, siblings, culture, and hear one voice. Hear one voice. The voice of our Father in heaven saying, You are in Christ. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. You're in Christ. Paul says earlier in Romans 8, You've been given the spirit of adoption to cry out, Abba, And then he closes that same chapter, Romans 8. Oh, if you could memorize one chapter in the Bible, wouldn't that be it? And he closes the same chapter by saying, For nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not death, not life, not angels, no demons, not past, not present, not future, not heaven, not hell. Turn down all the voices. There's only one voice. It's the voice of our Father who says, You are my beloved. You're not a failure. You are not your failures. Legitimate failure or perceived failure. You're not either, you're not either of those things.